I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny. I'm an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City, and back with me today is Chuck Marone, who I have not talked to in quite a while on Upzoned. I feel like it's been maybe like a month since we've done this. So we had a little bit of a hiatus, but it's great to see you. It's it's nice to see you too. We have been kind of missing each other, but you know, people may or may not care. We've been texting each other a lot. So <laughs> yeah. we like each other. <laughs> yeah. 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 Talking about aliens and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We miss each other when we don't get to do yeah, this. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it'd be great for you to come to Kansas city at some point again that's always a lot of fun, and I'm sure we'll we'll find that opportunity at some point in the future. Well, I was in Little Rock and uh, uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City last week, and I was oh, thinking I saw about that. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was thinking about you. I I know I'm. You know, it's a long ways from where you're at, but um, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's hot here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's in the it's in the region, I guess you would say. Everything's Kansas City is not really close to anything. Like any other city, really. So it seems like in this region, all the cities are really spread out. So yeah, Oklahoma City is like the middle point between here and Dallas, basically. Yeah, yeah. I do look forward to getting back to Kansas City. I know that we're talking about what next year is going to look like from a travel standpoint, and yeah, uh, seem to make it seem to make it down there once a year. So let's plan on it. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, and you're going to so come to Brainerd at some point, right? I know. Yeah. You have to show me all the real estate. <laughs> <laughs> Just do a, do a house tour of the city. Uh-huh. I'll get you here sooner or later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so this article that we're covering today um, was published in The Atlantic by an author named Ian, I think it's Bogos. Um, I may not be pronouncing that correctly. (laughs) And it got a lot of um, attention on the internet, especially Twitter. It was entitled, The E-Bike is a Monstrosity. (laughs) This is a controversial take on e-bikes. Just to kind of set the stage, between 2020 and 2021, there was a 240% surge in e-bike sales. They basically hit the mainstream. They became the world's best-selling vehicle in 2021. Um, These statistics are a huge win for people who are advocates of micromobility and alternative modes of transportation because people have long anticipated other options, more eco-friendly options and norms for how we move around as individuals. But the author of this article has a very critical perspective on e-bikes based on his experience. So he says that he got an e-bike and his conclusion is basically that e-bikes are freaks and monsters 
And <laughs> he basically finds these bike motorcycle hybrids to be very problematic, taking on the best and worst features of a variety of transportation technologies. He says that they allow riders to cheat on exercise and don't offer much more benefits than a regular bike in terms of real transportation alternatives. And he also says that for the high price that e-bikes are just not as cool as a motorcycle or a moped and that they're very unsafe and awkward to ride. He actually goes um, into quite a bit of detail about like kind of how he perceives people perceiving him on an e-bike and says that he's embarrassed to show up with one, which (laughs) we can talk about that. I thought that was really (laughs) kind of interesting. Um, I just thought this was kind of overall a difficult article to read just because I felt like it was really grasping and also very bizarre. We use that futon analogy a lot when we talk and (laughs) it almost makes me want him to write an article about futons because they're not a bed. They're not a couch. What is it? It's a monster. It's bizarre. Um, People will judge me if I have one. Yeah. (laughs) People will judge me if I have one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. An e-bike is weird. Does that make it like not a viable transportation alternative? No, I don't. I don't think so. What do you think, Chuck? Well, let's split this up into two because to me, the article was was interesting and it was well written. And I looked up the I'm like, who who is this guy? Because I don't recognize him. And he is not a standard Atlantic writer. I actually I don't want to out myself as being hoity toity or anything, but uh, I subscribe to two magazines, The Economist and The Atlantic. And I subscribe to The Atlantic because I love the writing. I think the writing's very good and they do thoughtful stuff. This was a well-written article, and it was well-written by someone who is kind of an artist, uh, not not necessarily a writer, certainly not an engineer or a transportation planner or someone working in a technical space. And not so, somebody who seems to even really be in like the quote-unquote urbanist internet right, world. <laughs> right. And so I tried to take it from that lens as like this is a this is a cultural statement on these things. And it was interesting to me because – he talked about mopeds being not that cool, but motorcycles being really cool, uh, automobiles being a status symbol. And I think a lot of us who are, you know, adjacent to the urbanist conversation reflexively react to that in negative ways, right? Because for us, automobiles aren't cool in a lot of ways, right? And I think it's important to step back and recognize that we do live in the U.S., uh, we do have a car culture. There's a reason why automobile manufacturers spend so much money marketing their products in ways that present them as hip and cool and being used by fun people, because that is you know, the impulse buy that most cars are. The reason why, Abby, I'm, I, I know you own a car. You don't own a minivan, right? Because no. part of, and you just gave me this look like, oh no, I don't own a minivan. Because if you owned not. a minivan, yeah, people would assume you were older. That I'm not cool. You're less cool <laughs> than you were, right? And there's a joke amongst dads. I mean, I'm 49. There's a joke amongst dads where at some point you just give up being cool, right? Like I realize I'm not cool and you get a minivan 
right? You kind of give in. <laughs> or an um, e-bike, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I think that's what, to me, that's what I was trying to grasp and I was trying to take away from this is that for this author, and I, I, I'm trying to validate their perspective or at least understand it, he finds e-bikes to be confusing, right? Um, boy, if I'm if I'm on my bike, I'm getting a workout, but an e-bike feels like cheating. Um, if I show up to the office having ridden my bike, I'm all sweaty and that's gross. And an e-bike is great because I don't show up sweaty. What I took away from that part of the article was that there's this cultural part of an e-bike that is not yet categorized, right? Yes, I think that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Is that it's too early and it's. I, for whatever reason, it's not yet categorized. And I think it's because e-bikes are so, they appeal to so many different types of riders. And that's that's the benefit of an e-bike is that it, it opens up biking to so many different people. It's not just for a 45-year-old dad who hasn't been on a bike in a long time. Um, I, I've seen mountain bikers with e-bikes. And I know some mountain bikers kind of roll their eyes at that, but it's actually really fun. <laughs> so I, I think the application of this technology to a bike, it serves so many different needs for so many different people. And it has yet to be branded in the way that, um, you know, the car industry might be or other types of vehicles like motorcycles might be. To me, that that seems to be the core thing, and that this writer was kind of struggling with not really, I guess, really an insecurity with how people, how are people going to perceive me? Which, to be honest with you, like, I think that deriving a sense of ego from your vehicle, like, I don't drive in a minivan, but I drive a Honda Civic. I'm on my third <laughs> Honda Civic. It's a pretty normie kind of vehicle. I'm not like rolling up in my 2011 HCIV trying to, you know, turn heads at how cool my car is. It kind of seems like a kind of a dude bro perspective. Like I need to have this vehicle and it's going to be impressive. And what do I do about this e-bike? It's, it's weird. It's, uh, Frankenstein, and I need to be able to associate my my quote unquote brand. This needs to reinforce my brand as I guess a per a person or an individual. It, maybe this is a natural tendency. I mean, before cars even existed, did people do this with horses or carriages or ships? You know, I I, I feel like someone could write a whole dissertation. Yeah, no, on they did. Right, status symbols of uh, transportation. There's a whole uh, part of Roman lore where, uh, you know, Julius Caesar's generation used to wear their togas kind of uh, loose, and that was this sign of of rebellion. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think this has always been humans do this, right? They signal yeah. to each other. Yeah, and th that's what I find fascinating about this particular article because the e-bike is not defined. A and he mentions in the article the 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 scooters, right? The e-scooters. And his like thing was well that that was a fad and now it's gone. I, I, Is it though? I'm looking, well, I was just going to say as a transportation person, so as a person who is not starting this conversation from culture, but starting it from transportation, I see scooters all over the place. Yeah, I, see people I using use them, them. frequently. <laughs> yes, I, I see people use them, but what I don't see is the chaotic 
lightness that kind of defined the early days of the scooter, right? Yeah. It was almost like in the early days of the e-scooter, they were just strewn all over the place. People didn't know where to ride them. They were riding them chaotically. And then all of a sudden people figured out like, if we're going to do this, we have to, in a sense, like, and it was the industry really that came in and said, okay, we're going to go collect them every night and put them in certain spots. And we're going to, you know, if you're abusing it, we're not going to let you use it. And, and cause long-term we want this to be a transportation technology people use. Th this author is kind of a culture person and he says, well, you know, e-scooters were cool for a while and then they went away and now they're not. And I, I, to me, when I think about e-bikes, that's actually the trajectory I would like e-bikes to take, right? Um, they're a fad, they're in the pandemic, everybody went on bottom. Wow, is it a scooter? Is it a motorcycle? Is it a bike? Do, am I cool? Am I not cool? Uh, as a normie like you, I would just like e-bikes to become normie, right? Also, just if you want to ride an e-bike, just own it. I mean, it doesn't have to be cool or not cool. Like, make it cool. If you think it's cool then just make it cool. That That's the thing that I thought was frustrating about this article. And I also agree that, yeah, bird scooters, I feel like he was saying that basically bird is no longer a thing. These scooters aren't really a thing kind of due to the fact that they the companies were overvalued and now they're not valued at the same level anymore. It was a huge and, financial bubble, right? Yeah. But that doesn't these, a make lot a of these tech companies. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these, te these tech companies have been overvalued for a long time. And that's for reasons that we don't have to get into on this podcast. But I think that just because, you know, those companies aren't as valuable, it doesn't mean that the, the option is gone. And also just because these options don't completely wipe out our use of automobiles, that doesn't mean that they're a failed experiment. I think that some advocates may disagree, but I don't think that that is necessarily the point of micromobility options. The point is to provide more alternatives to driving and particularly for short trips, but also, you know, potentially for commuting, such as, you know, e-bikes, I think are one of the most viable alternatives for commuting, although it doesn't have to be just for commuting. You could commute on a bird scooter. I wouldn't recommend it, <laughs> but it's a it, it is an alternative. It depends on how long trips. your yeah how long your commute is. Have Have you had a chance to to ride a legit like new version e bike? Yes. Yes. Yeah, me too. It's awesome. And I'm going to say I think it's awesome. I think it's great. We'll we'll um, brand it right now. It's very let's cool. Brand it right now. Yeah. You are super cool, cool if you ride anybody. Yeah, um, super I, cool. I, I, I feel like the- We should let him um, know so that he's not insecure <laughs> about it. Ian, you exactly. will be cool on your e-bike. Do not Dude, even sweat it. <laughs> we have millions of listeners. They will all love you. Um, yeah. <laughs> to me, the, 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 the culture issue resolves itself as e-bikes become, in a sense, the Honda Civic of, of bikes, right? Uh, I um, wouldn't put that on the marketing- <laughs> Oh no, sure. I, that's what I'm, that's my aspiration is that it's like the yeah. Honda Accord, right? Um, the Toyota, what is it? What is the Toyota that sells? It's the, you know, it, it's basically like the normie, the normie thing. Yeah. And, yeah. A pragmatic point A to point B transportation option. That's what a Honda Civic is. Yeah. I, I don't think this solves the, 
underlying tension, right? That that transportation people have with them. Because you do have, and, and I'm gonna use my own neighborhood here. We have really low, in my neighborhood, we have really, really low traffic volumes as we do in most neighborhoods in this country. If you go out two blocks to the highway running through the middle of town, you know, for a highway, it's low traffic volumes. For walking, for biking, high traffic volumes and high speeds, right? But if you go to the neighborhood here, hardly any cars, uh, no traffic to speak of. But we still see most people on bikes ride their bikes on the sidewalk, not in the street. And they ride on the sidewalk because they don't feel safe riding their bike in the street. And I understand that because I ride my bike in the street. I never ride on the sidewalk. And I will have vehicles come right up behind me, cut really close to me, because it's a very aggressive, very high speed, very dominant, auto-dominant kind of space. I do feel like what we are reacting to in many ways is the e-bikes following in the path of the non-e-bikes and having conflicts with humans out walking. As opposed to trying to, in a sense, tame the automobiles or make the automobiles more neighborhood friendly so that people on regular bikes could ride in the traffic stream with an understanding that then e-bikes would fit into that matrix too. I feel like the, the answer that so many people are trying to do is to say, well, Automobiles are here and they're going to drive at lethal non-neighborhood speeds. And that's like a given, like we'll just accept that. And then over here we have people walking and they're walking at like safe human speeds. But we have this like thing in the middle and it's always been the bike. And where does the bike go? Well, now we have two gradations of bike. We have a fast bike and a slow bike. And in my mind, what we're doing is we're like, you know, we have the old analogy that we use of the futon be an uncomfortable couch and an uncomfortable bed, like a strode is a bad street and a bad road. It's almost like what we're trying to do is say, there needs to be like a third gradation of the futon, right? It's got to be a couch and a bed and a dining room table too. And I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. When you're on a street, it needs to be slow moving, slow traffic. And that should be for automobiles. That should be for people walking. And that should also be for bikes. You know, 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour is a really good neighborhood speed. And if you do that, you don't have to have all this consternation about do e-bikes fit in or not. They fit into that matrix just fine. Yeah. Well, that's why, you know, the design of the street is incredibly important for how not just e-bikes, but regular bikes can actually function on them. But that takes a lot of political will. Like people need to be able to, you know, be okay with transforming these streets and giving up a little bit of speed. And that's really what needs to happen. The streets need to be designed in a way that not just accommodates, but like really actively integrates and promotes these other options because prioritizes them, prioritizes them because really you can't put an e-bike on a sidewalk. You might be able to get away with it um, with a regular bike riding and going around pedestrians, but it's, just doesn't sound like a good idea for these e-bikes because they do go pretty quick. It would be pretty unsafe to be putting pedestrians in harm's way. Although, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's not super common that that happens, but the streets really just need to be designed to support these different types of movement. And it would help motorcyclists too. 
yeah, I think they fit into this very well as well. I feel like I have to defend e-bikes because as I think about what a transition of a transportation network to a more strong towns approach looks like, it looks like a lot of temporary interventions in, in neighborhood streets to slow down traffic and make them more humane. And over time, those temporary interventions become more permanent. And a, there's a standard of design that comes out of that that emphasizes being in a place over getting through a place. But if you think of families that live in that, I, I think the future family configuration is going to be one motor vehicle with you know, one or more e-bikes that have a trailer, a, a, a carriage system, a way to haul groceries. Like, like for a suburban family, for suburbs to actually evolve, of the ones that I think are going to be viable 20 years from now, they're the ones that are going to evolve to have more of a neighborhood feel to them. More, as planners would say, mixed use, more commercial, near residential, more integrated type neighborhoods, a thickening up of the place. And from a family economic standpoint, the way that's going to work is that people are going to ultimately find having two cars makes less sense than having one car and something else. And if that something else is an e-bike, as opposed to a regular bike or walking, that type of thing, what it does is it just hastens the transition from where we're at today to where we need to get to. If that's what the e-bike ultimately does, it's done a massive service to mankind. Well, it's a revolutionary new transportation option. I mean, I think it really is. And it's become, I, I wouldn't say completely the norm, but it is in the mainstream. And people feel very passionately about e-bikes. You say that you feel the need to defend e-bikes. You should see the reaction online to this article. People love e-bikes. They're right. very cool, Ian. <laughs> people love e-bikes. I think, you know, unlike the Segway, which he ripped on, which, okay, fine. It was overhyped, but <laughs> that's the minivan you know, of, yeah, that's the minivan of micromobility. Of micromobility. <laughs> um, you know, like the Segway, like, uh, unlike the Segway, unlike the Lime scooter, my mom, you know, 68, 69 years old, will get on an e-bike. She just will. Um, my kids will get on an e-bike. I've ridden the scooters. Uh, I'm going to tell you. I'm not all that confident on a scooter. I feel very comfortable on an e-bike. You know, it's very comfortable for me because I have a lot of experience with e-bikes or with regular bikes, and it it is like a extension of that. So I I, I do think it has the opportunity to broaden micro mobility to a lot of people who today uh, think of it as a, a fad or outside of you know what something they would try. Yeah, I would be surprised if it was a fad that just goes away. I think that it is kind of the perfect next evolution of a regular bicycle. And it actually enables more people to use bicycles for a variety of different uh, functions, which is awesome. And, you know, what works for one person may not work for another. I, I just think that the whole point of micromobility and having these options is to bring more people into this overall ecosystem of not having to use a car for every single movement in your life. This is a, a huge cultural shift, and I think it's awesome. 
So let me ask you this, as someone who is younger and cooler than me, let's go to the author's point, his, his kind of cultural struggle with this. Do, do you see a day, do you foresee a period of time where, in a sense, having two cars would be, quote unquote, uncool or, or, or something that, you know, people would be like, ah, you know, the, what, what do you do? And that an e-bike would be an acceptable alternative to that or, or a, a cool alternative to that? Or is that kind of me imposing on, on the millennial generation something that is not likely to happen? I mean, that's a good question because I don't know about, I mean, I'm not like the coolest person ever. So I, I don't know that. I think I'm you the are. Best when I write ever. cool, <laughs> yeah. I put you so, right at the top, Abby. <laughs> I, I will say that I think people may see it as more pragmatic just because of how expensive having a car is. But I'm, again, I'm not the best person. Like I have a Honda Civic. It's paid off. No, I don't want a new car. I'm good. Uh, we have a motorcycle, we have bikes, you know, we, we've talked about just having one car and using other, other modes, but we live in the city. So I may not, I don't know. I don't know if, it, if, if that will become the norm or if that has just been kind of our norm, it's hard to say, but I wouldn't be super surprised just because of what a waste of money having huge car payments are. I mean, it truly, it, it's truly a waste of money, in my opinion, to have massive car loans and new cars. But I understand that there's people who love buying new cars and they want the smart smartphone screen in their car and the cooled seats and all the gadgets and everything. So I don't know. I watch my kids and my kids are in high school and, um, you know, my, my youngest one got her permit. Uh, she has no interest in driving. Like, I do not want to drive. I'm not interested yeah, in driving. Yeah, you told me that. She took she took the class. The older one, likewise, like when she went through, she, she now drives a lot and she likes driving and she likes the freedom of driving. But we also live in a small town in a rural area and her friends are spread all over the countryside. And, and I haven't driven my car for, <laughs> since the last time I went to the airport. But um you know, I can get around without a car, but for her, you know, with, with everything she has going on, it winds up, she uses it a lot. I could see them both without hesitation, ultimately living in a place, you know, a decade from now where they wouldn't need a car and like that being a deciding factor. Neither of them have any passion for driving. And I feel like an e-bike would just expand the number of places where that would be possible for them. And so I wonder if there's a, there's a gener, I, I may be being optimistic. Um, and I don't know the age of this author. He seemed closer to my age than your age just by his photos, but I don't want to, I'm not sure. I wonder if there is a transition going on here where a, a younger generation brought up being tied into the back seat of a car, as opposed to experiencing like I did in the front seat with no seatbelt, uh, you know, looks at the car as more of a, a burden, less of a status symbol. For my kids, their phone is the status symbol, right? Like I've got the latest iPhone, I am cool, versus I have the the new car, I'm cool. And That's interesting. Maybe it will yeah, shift. I, well, I wonder if we can have some optimism that 
we're just seeing like a generational shift and an e-bike is maybe going to be part of that. I'm kind of interested in being attuned to, you know, what are younger people saying about e-bikes as opposed to culturally, as opposed to people who are more middle-aged and more um, established with a motorcycles are cool, automobiles are cool, their status symbols kind of mindset. Because I don't see that mindset. I wonder if we have any like people who listen to this who are in research marketing studying this issue. I would think that there's people who are maybe studying this and maybe looking at perceptions of e-bikes and because like like a motorcycle, motorcycles are very cool and it would be very cool if e-bikes were just as cool and buying, you know, two brand new vehicles that cost you like $1,000 a month um, are not as cool. We would save a lot of money collectively. Well, pay attention to automobile commercials because the automobile industry has been dealing with this for quite a while. Um, I remember I I bought the the, uh, Honda Element was a car I drove for 15 years. And the Honda Element was a vehicle that was marketed to young people. Honda was seeing a huge drop off in young buyers and they wanted to try to capture that market. And so they came up with this thing that was gonna, you know, they they marketed it with people putting surfboards on the top. There was a, a, a removable window with a like tent thing that went around it so you could change in your swimsuit uh, while, you know, when you arrived at your destination. It, the seats went all the way down so you could take a nap in there and like camp in it. Yeah. It was it they was were trying marketed. to take over the Jeep market, right? It, it was marketed to young people, yeah. but the reality is, is that middle-aged people bought it. People in their 40s bought it with kids. Um, and they've struggled, and, and automobile manufacturers in general have struggled to market to a younger crowd. They're just they're not reaching them. And so if you watch car commercials, car commercials tend to have a lot of moms, right, schlepping kids around. They tend to have a lot of moms. They tend to have a lot of men who like big trucks, like backing up my big truck to this and hooking onto that <laughs> and all this stuff. Um, but they tend to not have, yeah, they tend to not be filled with like college age kids. Yeah. Um, because unlike when I was that age, that demographic does not seem to be pining for a new automobile. No. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't really know a lot of people in my age bracket that are like actively going out and buying a brand new vehicle. Most people I know, if they're going to buy a vehicle, they're buying a used vehicle. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, the the churn of new vehicles, they've essentially taken off the market these, what, what they would refer to two decades ago as like the introductory brands, right? Because if we can get you into Toyota when you're 22, you'll go back to Toyota when you're 30 and when you're 40 and when you're 50. A little bit like cigarettes, right? Like if we can get you drinking our kind of beer when you're 16, you'll drink that kind of beer when you're 40, right? It's a it's a thing that they have It'll become like a habit. Yeah. Well, it will become like your, your thing, right? Like I'll tell you, I wear Nikes stuff because I grew up with Air Jordan and I'm like, I'm all about Nike. And my kids are like, Nike's not nearly as cool, dad, as it used to be. Like there's all these You're other like, things that are- I don't need to be cool. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. I'm Nike because that's what like I'm, the people in my age group are. If you look at, if you look close at automobile marketing, they're not marketing to those groups as heavily as they, they, they once did. Those are not the groups that are moving new vehicles. 
the groups that are moving inventory, especially new inventory, tend to be much older. So let's let's end this by being optimistic about the e-bike. I feel like I can recognize the tension with it, but I think within that tension, what I'm taking away from this article is that the coolness factor is still wide open on e-bikes. And hopefully the next generation will you know, claim them and brand them as cool. And then we can all just live in that wake, right? Yeah. Make it cool. Yeah. They are make cool. Make it cool, people. And don't worry what other people think. Ride your e-bike. No. Do you. Right. <laughs> I, I can't make e-bikes cool because I'm not a trendsetter. You're closer yeah. to being a trendsetter than me. You might be able to make e-bikes cool, but I feel like my kids need to make e-bikes cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let yeah. them know. They need to... That's what they need to do is make them cool. You know what I'll tell them? Let them know. I'll tell them that e-bikes are not cool and then they will want one. Yes. Perfect. I'll do a dad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Reverse psychology. I like it. (laughs) Okay. So we'll end it there on a positive note. Very cool. Not monsters. Uh, Awesome. Very cool. Uh, Let's go into the down zone, which is the part of this show where we share anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything that has been... Uh, taking up our time these days. Chuck, I will throw it to you. What have you been up to? Um, I've been doing this thing with a group at my church and we've been day after day reading a little part of the book of Revelation, which is this very strange book um, in the at the end of the Bible. And I've, I've had this other book that I started this summer that I put down and now I brought back called Render Under Caesar. That is a, the latest book by John Dominic Crossan, who is a, a, a historian, theologian that I really like. And it has been largely, I'm about halfway through, about the book of Revelation as well. And I find it very interesting because there's a history there that I did not know until now. And I'm going to give you one tiny little thing. If you think of Roman numerals, Roman numerals are not numbers the way we think of numbers, right? They're letters. Uh, you know, X, I, X is, uh, you know, 19, right? And we, we, we recognize that these are, when they're arranged that way, they don't signify letters, they signify numbers. Um, but if you look at, uh, say, the, the name Nero, and you take Nero, and I actually don't know how Nero is spelled, but I could say this with David. David in the Hebrew Bible would be DVD. And DVD, if you add up six... Uh, 464, which is what DVD would mean numerically, you get the number 14. And in the book of Revelation, there's all these 14 couplets that have to deal with genealogies. Um, Nero, if you add that up, actually comes out to the number 666, which is like the, uh, you know, Revelation thing. Revelation was all about the Roman Empire, and it was all about Nero, and it was all about of Christians and John of Patmos's uh, kind of vision about how to survive this and how this wave of anti-Christian persecution would ultimately change and the Roman Empire would be put in its place and da da da. And I've I've appreciated the juxtaposition of with my church group a little bit of theology, but with this book Render Under Caesar a little bit of the history and kind of the merge too, because uh, let's face it. Revelation is a weird book. <laughs> it's like it's so very, it's a very weird thing to read, and it's it's been helpful for me to get both uh, kind of simultaneously. And I've I've found it very rewarding way to spend the last few weeks. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, 
So is that something that I, I, sorry if I missed this, but are you reading that book kind of on your own alongside with this, or is it something that's been intentionally partnered? Well, I, I started the other book, the John Dominic Cross in one, Render Under Caesar. I started that uh, earlier this summer, put it down because I, I had some other things I was working on and then picked it up kind of coincidentally at the same time I was uh, getting into this thing with my church group. And yeah, it's been it's been weird because, you know, I'm the only one in the church group reading the other book. So I will occasionally bring things in from that. And it's, uh, you know, it's like, wow, okay, I didn't know that. And um, yeah, it's been good part of the discussion. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, well you, so- you grow up, you know, if you, for Revelation, especially, it's like this mystic book, right? Mm-hmm. And, oh, the number 666 is a sign of the the mark of the beast and yeah. like, yeah, the, the beast was Nero. I mean, that was the guy that they didn't like cause he killed a bunch of them, you know, like I get it. <laughs> well, mine is not uh, quite as heady as yours. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but about maybe it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, I got um, some, some kayaks and I had been, you know, taking those out and having a really great time with them. I recently got rid of them and Uh-oh. decided to become a stand-up paddleboard person. Oh my goodness. I know. Okay. So I've left the world of kayaking and I am now a paddleboard person, which is extremely fun. I don't know if you've ever been on a stand-up paddleboard. It is awesome. I actually found these paddleboards that they basically they deflate and you inflate them at each time that you use them and they fit perfectly in a Honda Civic in a way that kayaks do not and I don't have a rack for them. So this has been like the best uh, alternative transition that I have I've made and I'm very happy with my decision. So I have been taking those out like every weekend since I got them and I'm hoping to take them out this weekend, but it says that it's going to be cold this weekend, like cold and rainy, and it's pretty hot out today. So I'm hoping that it's not going to be cold and rainy, delayed but a we'll bit. see. Yeah. yeah. Delayed fall. Well, I, I think you just went from like, you know, uh, lime scooter level of cool to e-bike level of cool, right? Like that's, that's what the you. That's what the kayak to paddleboard is. I think you just- elevated yourself in in hipness the paddle boards are kind of cool like the, yeah, they, the branding cool. for the paddle boards <laughs> yeah what this is i mean we're not just talking about land transportation we're talking about water too you have a boat i have a paddle board uh there's all different spectrums of coolness with all of these different uh you know movement options so so I feel like you, okay, so here is for for boating, because I have a, a boat and we have a, a tube that we put on the back and we pull it around. Um, that would be me. I would be the guy being pulled on the tube with the pontoon. You have gotten closer to like the person wake surfing. Um, yeah. You know, but, I'm yeah, basically like that's a surfer. The, yeah. So you, you've, you've like really gone far on the coolness spectrum and I'm, yeah. I'm duly impressed. Well, I don't think I'm going to become a uh, surfer because I am very afraid of sharks and I can get into that another time because I 
prior to getting the paddle boards, I spent like a month just learning a lot about sharks when, which started when I was on vacation. And then I found a shark tracker and I found all these really cool resources for like tracking sharks and looking at their movements. And I am not going to become a surfer. Okay. Let me ask you this. Afraid of sharks, but not afraid of aliens, right? I'm kind of afraid of aliens. But <laughs> I mean, Come on, Abby. <laughs> kind of, but am I don't know. There's no, um, there's no, uh, there's no footage of people getting their leg torn off by an alien that I'm aware well, of. So, well, you know, there's lots of stories. <laughs> lots of stories. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we will end it there. Chuck, thank you for joining me today. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Bye, Abby. Let me show you what I-